So like fiction, right? Like we all recognize that as power, but I think it has power in some like really interesting and like practical ways too, right? It's not just like heady stuff, you know, or meaningless or dismissive because, you know, we talked in one episode about whether it's verbiage or verbiage, you know, potato, potato, tomato, tomato. How do you settle these things? And one of the things that I remember all growing up was, is it Caribbean or is it Caribbean? Mm. <laughs> and everybody fights over, is it Caribbean or is it Caribbean? Is it Caribbean or is it Caribbean? And then the Pirates of the Caribbean came out <laughs> and justified my position, which was that it was Caribbean. Now, I don't know if that is a nail in the coffin, but like nobody says the Pirates of the Caribbean. The, <laughs> nobody. The Magisterium. Of Disney. It has spoken. Has spoken. Right? It's been decided. Right? Otherwise, we got to say, well, it's Pirates of the Caribbean, Pirates of the Caribbean. Kind of depends on what you think. <laughs> no, my friends. No. It has been settled. Disney has spoken. So it has been said. So it shall be written. So it shall be done. And that's the power of fiction. All this other stuff we're going to say in the rest of the episode, who even cares? As long as we know how to pronounce the Caribbean, I think we're good. All right, so uh, thank you for joining us, listeners. This is 10,000 Places. We're a theologian, a philosopher, and a campus minister go into a room and then go all kinds of places, including the Caribbean. And yes, I do like some more, you know, cultured fiction than just those movies. Um, I haven't (laughs) even seen the last two. But anyway, I'm Alex Gilner. I'm Justin Aquila. I'm Lewis Pearson. And this is 10,000 Places. Today... We are indeed talking about Johnny Depp fiction, (laughs) who may or may not be fiction at this point. I mean, does anybody (laughs) even know? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, before we jump into the topic, we want to thank our sponsor who has chosen to remain anonymous. And he just asks you to remember that if you would like a Catholic funeral, to make sure that is in your will. Well, a will is a story that we tell. And you want to make sure that you tell the story while you still can. Will is actually a testimony. It's That's a right. testament. That's yeah. mm. where we get the so, word. Yeah, today we're talking about fiction. It's a little bit fiction. of a, it's a little bit of a break from our usual topics, and but that's in the spirit of the mission of our podcast, which is to find Christ in ten thousand places. So I thought I'd just throw it out to you, gentlemen. What has been the most impactful work of fiction in your lives? And maybe I'll share mine afterwards. Could I give a, a small apologia for fiction before I give mine? Yeah, a little defense of fiction. Because I know some people who, they don't do fiction. They think, right. well, it's not real, so why should I do it? And it came up for our family. Our family doesn't do Santa Claus. It's about Jesus. And on December 6th, we I'd celebrate- I'd like to fight you on that sometime, but not today. <laughs> yeah. We celebrate St. Nicholas Day on, on December 6th. But we don't say it, it's garbage. It's a story we don't celebrate in our family. We celebrate SpongeBob and Transformers and all kinds of other things, right? But the Santa Claus story isn't, For us, it competes with other stories we like to tell. And it's one that has picked up a kind of cultural impetus, right? Fiction is a way that we help to create culture. So just because something isn't history doesn't mean it's garbage. I think the way that many big business cultural forces in America have shown, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like what Disney is doing, people really care about these things, right? They invest themselves in things that aren't real. They know they're not real, but it's because you get to explain and explore 
dimensions of what it means to be human through these stories. Oh, yeah. Tell a person that the work of fiction they like is not good fiction, that it's garbage. Mm -hmm. Tell somebody, oh, Harry Potter's stupid. Yeah. They will freak out on you. Why? Because it matters to them. Although I will say at at a recent wedding, I realized I was brought back to my old comic book nerd roots and nerd was a bad word back when I was growing up. Yeah, right. and no one, I, I suffered for the word that is now so popular. Yeah. One of my favorites was Silver Surfer and following him was Quasar. And uh, my old friend pointed out, you can't have the Infinity War without Silver Surfer. There's no such thing as Infinity War without Silver Surfer. Therefore, these movies aren't real. Like, this isn't the story. And I thought, you're right. You're right. <laughs> he just, he won me over. Yeah. So, Lewis, what's your... Sorry, I I just threw Alex into this deep... (laughs) I'm just thinking it through. Yeah. Because he is is absolutely an infinity gauntlet. It's because Sony owns the rights. That's the reason. Yeah. And he also setting up the Infinity War. He's the one that comes and warns them that Thanos has the gauntlet. He tries to go up against him and then he realizes... Anyway. Yeah. So we can see what fiction impacts me. I got 20 (laughs) books I can tell you. I don't like favorites. And coming from someone who doesn't like favorites, C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. That's my wife's favorite book. Is one of the, he says himself, Lewis says that this is a book that's unlike any other book he's written. And as someone who's read many of his books, I agree. It spoke to me in a time when I had suffered a lot of brokenness, when I had experienced a reversion back to the faith from atheism. The story, if you don't know it, is told by a narrator who's looking back on her life. And she lives in a a kind of pagan culture. It seems to intersect with real history. They get a slave after a battle. They call him the fox. He's a Greek. And so the narrator is one of the daughters of the king of this little pagan kingdom, a tiny little kingdom. And he hires the fox to be the tutor for his children. One of them is beautiful and he has plans for her. Another is ugly. And he thinks, well, at least I can teach her something with this Greek slave I found, and so she's going to learn philosophy. And the narrator tells the story of her life growing up under this kind of father that she doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for, and this tutor that she does have respect for, and these sisters of hers that she has complicated relationships with. So she's not one of the two. I've not actually read it. Mm. She's not one of the two, the pretty one or the ugly one. She's the ugly one. Oh. The ugly one tells the story. Yeah. There are two sisters. One's pretty enough. The other is otherworldly, Helen of Troy, beautiful. And that leads to one of the the major conflicts in the novel. But what happens, there's this scene where the sisters are reunited, where the narrator thinks she has lost her sister forever, that she's been devoured by some beast or stolen by some bandit or who knows what's happened to her, but she finds her. And they start to talk and she thinks, finally, we can be together again. And what she sees is a sister who's been living in the wild, who has tattered clothes, who nevertheless, for some reason, seems more vibrant and ruddy and healthy and strong and filled out than she's ever seen her before. And in the moment, she doesn't really think much about it. She just thinks, oh, that's weird, but whatever's happened to you, let's get you back home. And the sister who's looked like this wild child out there in the wastelands tells her sister, come into my palace, meet my, my husband. And the sisters just can't see eye to eye. There's this break between them where they both realize you no longer live in the same world that I do. 
The narrator thinks you live in some weird fantasy land, you've gone out of your mind, and you believe these stupid fairy tales that dad and everyone else told you about the beast that you were given to as a bride, the who devours you and who marries you. No, it's probably some bandit who's tricking you. And the sister, the one who was married to this, this strange, fantastical creature that we never really see, thinks her sister cannot see. She can't see the palace. She doesn't understand. And because she doesn't understand, there's this immense gulf between them. And the one sister that she was looking forward to that would complete her happiness and her new life can no longer be part of her life. And this happens like in the middle of the book. So a lot of the book is the narrator coming to terms with what happened in her life and to her sister. And the rest of the book is just very mystical, I think isn't an overstatement. Even at the end of the book, odd things happen and the narrator says what they mean allegorically. And Lewis liked to write allegories, but even when you read them allegorically, they still don't make full sense. And they don't make full sense in one of the ways that I love about some fiction, where a bad author can fail to tie up loose ends. A good author can leave loose ends and make you fall into the story and figure out what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens until yeah, we have faces. Yeah. That's awesome. How about you, Alex? Twilight. <laughs> I, always, I always begged you for I Twilight. I spit water. <laughs> um, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. <laughs> No, uh, honorable mention, of course, to, for me, for actually the Space Trilogy. Uh, C.S. Lewis. Lewis. That actually impacted me a lot. And honestly, people love Paralandra. It's my least favorite of the three. It's amazing. I love it. But it's my least favorite of the three. Out of the Silent Planet is just yeah. otherworldly. I mean, all puns intended, I suppose. And that hideous strength, it's a little bit of a slog at times. It's not as snappy and clean as the first two but man is it amazing and has some of the deepest yeah listeners like, if you're i mean I, I think you can call it science fiction in a sense but it's more than science fiction but if you're interested in science fiction highly recommend yeah c.s lewis's the space trilogy but you know all kidding and honorable mentions aside i have to go with the boring catholic boy answer it's the Lord of the Rings. There's so You can't many... beat that. You can't no. beat You just can't. And like, I thought about it as we were getting ready of like, should I do maybe like the violent Barrett away or, you know, even something a little bit more visceral, like Lord of the Flies really affected me. <laughs> and I know you have your qualms with that, Lewis, but like, I, I mean, there's a lot of works of fiction throughout the years that have deeply affected me, but Lord of the Rings just does top them all. And really, so for me, and one of these days we got to do a top three, what's your favorite myth? Oh, yeah. And maybe like, what's your favorite Old Testament story? We can make it like a top three yeah. thing like that we do. But for me, so much of why I love theology and philosophy and why all that comes together for me in scriptural studies is because I love mythology. Mythology. Like the ancient sense. Yeah. In the elegant sense of stories that explain the world, right? And not like not, myth the, not the fairy tales we make up because the world is big and scary and I don't understand it. Right. And certainly like, yes, we now look at, you know, the Olympians or the Egyptian pantheon and we think, oh, that wasn't true. It was all myths. And we get in our mind that the word myth means, you know, just a, like a false story. And no, muthos, the word in Greek that it comes from there is a story that explains the world and why it is the way it is and where it came from and where it's going. And in this sense, actually, the Bible is myth. The resurrection of Christ is myth. 
the Exodus narrative, the Genesis stories, these are myths in that regard. It doesn't mean they're false. In fact, I think they're absolutely 100% true. But mythology is a way of explaining the world. And to see an author do that, you know, I've often thought to myself, if I ever did fiction, I'd want to do for the biblical mythology what Lord of the Rings does for the Norse and Old English mythology and kind of create this world. Yeah. But then I think like, well, didn't the Bible already do that? So I don't know. <laughs> and the Silmarillion kind of does a little bit of that. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. And I really, when I say Lord of the Rings, I mean the whole thing. In fact, when I was finishing undergrad, I was either going to go study literary criticism and become a Tolkien expert, or I was going to study church history. And it was down to those two. And I ended up choosing church history, in part because Tom Shippey, an excellent Tolkien scholar, had retired, and I really wanted to work with him. But it was like, it was a near miss. I'd be a completely different person. I wouldn't be, I mean, there's almost, if I had gone down that road, there's almost no way to imagine that I'd be here in Fort Wayne, married to Mary Beth and talking to you two yokels. Well, thank God for Tom Shippey's retirement. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) But no, like, it's amazing. But I was studying it and everything. And I mean, to narrow down why it's so impactful to me is in so many ways, like, how could I even do that? You got three hours. I know, right? But to really kind of hone in on one aspect is that the Lord of the Rings taught me about imagination. Mm. And not imagination in, like, the kind of chintzy sense we use it in kind of common parlance or even, I think, a pretty super superficial sense of it's the way we create things and, like, it's our, you know, but, like, the idea that Imagination is worldview applied to reality. Hmm. Imagination is what allows us to understand the world based upon the stories that we think are true. And so this is what's so important about the Catholic imagination, the biblical imagination, the Christian imagination is, I mean, any philosopher and theologian truly worth their salt, any intellectual worth their salt knows that you can understand the world without God completely and try to explain all of his evidence, and you can do it with. But both of those are instances of imagination. And so to see Tolkien, who was a genius, who understood imagination and myth and why these things, and I think it's why everybody tries to allegorize it to things that were happening in his life and the war and all that, and why he himself was resistant to that. I don't think because I think his distinction between allegory and applicability is real, but I think that part of the reason he was resistant is because he knew what he was doing. And what he was doing was not social commentary. What he was doing is building a world through imagination. And so he was resistant to those things, partly because he understood what myth really is. And that's why he says one of my favorite things that anybody has ever said, in Christ, all myths come true. Hmm. You know? Yeah. On fairy stories is not a work of fiction, but also a deeply, deeply powerful and impactful work about how I think about the imagination and how all stories are really telling the story. And to augment that point, G.K. Chesterton in his book, The Everlasting Man, talks about mythology and not myth, mythology, right? This is two Greek words, muthos, logos. Yep. A story and an account. And the way Chesterton puts it, what Christianity does... Myth is what the poet does. Logos is what the philosopher does. The poet paints a picture. The philosopher draws a diagram. And they do very different things. Mm -hmm. A diagram can explain the world, 
but not in the way that a painting can and vice versa. And so you can't completely do the work of explaining things with one or the other. The two have to come together. Right. And so what myth does is it trains us how to view the world. And so really, the world is a clash of myths, right? And the biblical myth is, I think you could diagram it. You can submit it to historical critical analysis. You can try to falsify it. And I think all these are actually good endeavors. I'm not one of these people who say, well, the Bible's just myth, and so we don't have to worry about those questions. I actually think it matters whether that the probity of the historical narrative of the Bible matters. But at the end of the day, the Bible is here to train us how to actually view the world and how to see Christ in 10,000 places or something like that. And um, Lord of the Rings does that. It appeared in a time not just of, of, of social and economic unrest in the world wars and the aftermath of the World War II, but also when the literary critics and the reader response and the relativists were winning and postmodernism was winning. I mean, you read Tolkien's, one of his last lectures, The Monsters and the Critics, you can hear almost the bitterness of where he was leaving things. And The Lord of the Rings is almost like the romantics attempt to defy the scientists, in this sense, it's the attempt to defy these modernists and late modernists and postmodernists and to offer the reality of purpose and meaning in the world, that the world really does speak to us about something deeper. It's hard to fully explain that. It's hard to wrap it up. And uh, I certainly don't want to go into anything else. But so, yeah, for me, it's Lord of the Rings. You know, something's happening as we're recording this episode that I didn't expect when I propose this topic for our conversations. And knowing you both, as I hear you talk about the works of fiction that impacted you, I'm gaining insight into the source of your passions. Mm. <laughs> um, and maybe that's the thing we've stumbled upon about. Uh, well, it was your question, really. Yeah. It wasn't what's your favorite. It was what impacted, impacted you the most. Yeah. 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 And so maybe I'll just share my most impactful work of fiction novel. I'd say it's actually probably one of the most foundational or most impactful works period that I read that shaped me. And that is Walker Percy's novel, The Moviegoer, and Walker Percy's work just in general. I encountered Walker Percy, this is kind of a funny story. My parents, like many boys, I needed to be able to get energy out. And so when I was 15, they sent me to work with a neighbor who was building his own house. So two or three times a week in the summer, I would go out in this old beat up truck to drive about 45 minutes away from where we lived to work you know, with my hands. And my parents expected me to, to learn a trade. I learned so much more was a love for Walker Percy because the man I worked for had a master's. He was a master carpenter, but he also had a master's degree in literature and creative writing. Hmm. And he opened up this world, this man, Walker Percy, who had been uh, foundational for his conversion. Uh, this is my best friend's dad. So I started reading Walker Percy about 16, 17 years old for some context, what was happening in my life. The 9-11 had happened a year or so prior, and the sex abuse crisis was, had just broken out the Boston Globe spotlight story. And so I was really in this place of why did As good a things convert, happen? I can't imagine what that was like. Yeah, it was. It was I found Tilly had faces almost the same time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was shaking my world, my confidence in my faith. That was such an important part of who Actually, I am in my comu that's community. That's when I, that's. It was a little bit earlier, but that's when I really... Yeah, like 2002-ish? Yeah, yeah, like right before yeah. that. But it was because I graduated high school in 2001. Yeah. And it was right towards the end of high school that I, I was turned on to Lord of the Rings. This is right. weird. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. 
Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so I needed answers. And Walker Percy's novels are usually about characters, usually male characters, who feel lost in the world, especially in the moviegoer, launch on a search. So the premise of the moviegoer is there's this man who goes to movies as a hobby, but it's really to distract himself from what Walker Percy calls the everydayness of life. And Mm. it's a beautiful story about this young man who's about 30 years old and his conversion experience. And Walker Percy is a convert to Catholicism. He grew up in the great Stoic tradition of the South, which the Southern tradition, the best of it, there's a lot that Percy could critique about the worst of Southern American culture, was rooted in in the ideal of, of like the Romans and the Greeks, the Marcus Aurelius is the man of civic virtue, wasn't necessarily religious. And Percy just had this experience in his life where he's likely, he was believed to be, and he was convicted about doing this, the first man in his family not to have committed suicide. Mm. And so he actually was training as a medical doctor and got tuberculosis. And as he was recovering, he started reading the great works of fiction, Dostoevsky. And, and so Percy, in some ways, channels that tradition of literary greatness in the 1960s and 70s when he's writing. He recognizes immediately the, the breaking in of Christ into his own life. And it just kind of, Christ is a way of breaking into a fiction in the way his, probably Christ broke into his own biography. That's really And cool. so Walker Percy's novels are kind of also this tension between this old way of seeing the world of Roman Stoicism and Christianity. So the kind of penultimate scene of the novel, the young man in the novel, Binks Bowling, is falling in love with this young woman, and he encounters her. So he's been his whole life has been an abstraction. It's been not incarnate, not earthy and fleshy. And he's watching this girl he loves gonna like pick at her flesh on her thumb. Hmm. And he's seeing like this blood drip from her thumb as he's standing in New Orleans at the corner of Elysian Fields, which is the <laughs> great stoic image of, of yeah. what we call heaven. And La Bonne Enfance, the good infant, the infant Jesus. And it's at this intersection that he <laughs> finds the incarnate, the reality of which he's been escaping from by going to movies his most it's of his this life. Divine and the human as well. Right. The, coming together. It literally intersecting. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Walker Percy is a big fan. He's also an incredibly clever and satirical writer in his own right. And in one of his novels, I'll just share this The, the Love in the Ruins. He imagines a kind of post-apocalyptic world almost where in the United States where there's super liberal Catholicism, which is led by a hip priest named Father Kev Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Into all sorts of Yeah, which is into all sorts of uh, bizarre sexual experimentation. And then this kind of um, overly patriotic traditional version of the Catholic Church, which plays the Star Spangled Banner at the elevation of the Eucharist. Oh, <laughs> wow. He's writing in like 1980, like That is 80s, like more hideous Like 1983, yeah. In so many ways. <laughs> Whoa. And then finally, like the real hero of Love in the Ruins is a Catholic priest who he is, is described, for those of you who remember Ricardo Montalban, the actor, mm. as a Ricardo Montalban lookalike. <laughs> yes, for Star Trek Wrath of Khan, the original. Boom. This figure who's described as a Ricardo Montalban lookalike lives, he's a fire watcher. So he lives in a tower that overlooks the world because he can't afford in this world that Percy imagines, he can't afford to be make a living of being a priest. And so he's like Simon the Stylite, hmm. as you know the story, who's up on a pole, 
who can see the world in this kind of unique way, looking out of the treetops. And Percy's just brilliant. I mean, this is funny the way he characterizes the church, but also gets at the, you know, sociologically, but gets at the truth of what the real witness is. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Dude, we got to do episodes like this more often. Like, I was just transported by y'alls. Yeah, I'm thinking about the movie girl right now. I've never read Love in the Ruins, but I'm walking the streets in my mind. My streets as a young man, thinking about this young man in that, in that book. But yeah, I agree. And uh, this is just scratching the surface. Oh, yeah. Just barely talked about three yep. books right. alone. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. It's, yep. This is why I love doing this podcast. I just love the conversation. And I hope, listener, that to kind of you know open the veil a bit, look behind the curtain, we have endeavored to make this podcast very natural, very conversational, and very much you know, three people really kind of negotiating the world and finding our faith in it. We and, don't research or study before. We just go. Yeah. And like, it, is this like, our topic? Let's do yeah, it. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes it is a little raw. Sometimes it like, might be a little bit, you know, I know we can be a little bit sarcastic and edgy, but really this is the beauty of what we do. These are friends that I see outside of the podcast all the time. And yet before your very ears, <laughs> I've seen something new in them and I've seen something new about Jesus. Mm. That's powerful. Yep. And so I hope, listener, dear listener, that you're having this experience along with us. That's why we're doing it. We're, you know, that I wouldn't presume to think we have too many like brilliant or genius <laughs> things to say or add to all that noise out there, but really just the look into the fellowship and the camaraderie that Christ is and brings. And uh, hopefully we can bring a little bit of that to you as well. What just occurred to me, when Christ says, where two or three are gathered in my name, it's not this spiritual, va right. vague thing. Right. Like there's a very real particular yes. thing I'm seeing I am in there. the two or three here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, not thing, yeah. person, yeah. person. <laughs> I would just add, a great line from Walker Percy's The Movie Goer that I think sums us up too in some ways. He says, to be on to the search is to be on to something. To not be on to the search is to despair. Hmm. Quaestio. Yeah. Quaestio. Yeah. Question, that, he's quest. borrowing that yeah, from St. Augustine yeah. in so many ways in the, the Augustine's Confessions. But oh my gosh. We are but questions to ourselves and we're here with community and friends and in the context of our faith in Jesus in which we are able to know that that search has an answer, and that is the great hope in which we live. He is the answer to the question. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. We don't know you yet, but we love you. And I hope that this podcast can be as edifying to you as it is for us just sitting here in the booth. So, till next time, I'm Alex Giltner. I'm Justin Aquila. I'm Lewis Pearson. Go and seek Christ in 10,000 places. Amen. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.